The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Well, we are presently going to embark on a new series in which my goal, by God's grace, is to complete a full study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Looking at the entire canon of Scripture, Romans is the theological bridge between the Old Testament and its types and the substance of the New Testament and its epistles. Romans is at the heart of the Reformation and has historically played an instrumental key role in almost every revival both throughout Europe and America. So let's pray by God's will that this series will also carry the power of God unto salvation for those whom God draws to listen. Lord, it is my prayer that once again the power of your word The good news of the gospel, inspired by you through Paul in this study of the book of Romans, would, by your Holy Spirit, be brought to life afresh, to spark reformation afresh, to all that you would be pleased to bring it to. May you bless the study and the hearing of your word, 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as is our habit, studying Romans is no different than any other study of the Bible. We want to be faithful Berean students who use accepted rules of hermeneutics, proper application of languages, context, grammar, culture, audience, author, historical setting, and genre. And we do so in an effort to properly exegete the ultimate message and meaning of the author, God. Our presupposition is that God is inspiring the text to reveal some aspect of his nature and character or of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But it would perhaps be a benefit to consider that God also was involved in the inspiring the actual construction and arrangement of the individual books of the Bible into the very order that they are presently as a whole. If we do so, we look at the entirety of Scripture in relationship to the placement of Romans, you may notice something which deserves attention. In order to illustrate this, I I would draw your attention to the Old Testament. In particular, notice the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, known as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In short, here we find an account of the beginnings of all things in Genesis, including the fall of man into sin and separation from God our Creator. We see man's movement from the resting Shabbat, the seventh day, in covering grace given freely by God at creation to the other end of the spectrum where we attempt to be like God apart from grace according to our own knowledge and our own merits, efforts, and works. The next four books proceed to articulate details and the specifics of this knowledge encapsulated by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From Genesis 3 until Christ, we essentially have a history of trial and eventual failure, demonstrating that, in fact, we can know good and evil, but the missing element and reality is that apart from God, man has no power to perform the good or refrain from the evil. It is simply empty knowledge. As soon as we turn to the New Testament, we see four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who essentially present an antithesis account on new beginnings where, like the old Adam, the new Adam, Christ, restores a pathway for fellowship and reconciliation between God and man. Acts can be seen as the antithesis account of the creation of Eve for Adam. And in this case, Eve is taken from Adam's side. The two are brought together to be one, but the relationship is marred by sin and separation. In the second case, we see Christ as the second, better Adam, who is perfect. And from Christ's propitiatory sacrifice from his side, his bride-to-be, i.e. the church, is born in Acts. And the two are to be one eventually, and the relationship is to be reconciled and perfected unto eternity. As we come to the book of Romans and we consider the whole in context to the trajectory thus far, 
It's not difficult to recognize Romans as the theological bridge as stated before between the Old Testament and the New. Paul, who is an expert in the Mosaic law and prophecy and the writings, is the perfect candidate at the perfect time and in the perfect place to reveal all the various types and shadows of the Old Testament and to explain their substance once he has discernment given through Christ in his appearance on the Damascus Road. Romans is Paul's magnum opus, inspired and revealed by God through the Holy Spirit to give explanation to the Mosaic Law. Romans is a dissertation at length into the mechanics and meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and its effects. It is the final and quintessential Cliff Notes mastery on the subject of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Thus, the very placement of Romans in the overall Bible is itself another testament to the purposeful design, integrity, and inspiration by God, its author. Now, geographically speaking, Rome is the capital of modern-day Italy, which sits upon seven hills on the eastern shore of the Tiber River. And according to legend, if you want to listen to that, Rome was founded by two mythical brothers, Romulus and Remus, on or about the 21st of April in 753 B.C., Yet another legend tells of a story of a woman named Roma who traveled to the area from Troy after the famed city's demise, and she, along with the Trojan prince Aenus and other survivors, reached the shores of the Tiber River. This, they believe, is where they settled and founded what soon became Rome, one of the mightiest empires of the ancient world. And clearly, historically, Rome grew into a majestic city in the 8th and 6th centuries B.C. and reached its peak in about 117 A.D. Now, as to the founding of the Church of Rome, in terms of the history there, the Roman general Pompey besieged Jerusalem in 63 B.C., and in the coming decades, thousands of Jews were imprisoned, tortured, and crucified before Jesus was born or started preaching. Rome enacted laws giving the Jewish population greater rights and freedoms, including the ability to build synagogues in Rome and to engage in free worship. This also included the ability for Jews to travel between Rome and Jerusalem, and some Jews, like Paul, were granted Roman citizenship, giving them full access to all the rights and privileges due to Romans. Historical records indicate that Jews began to become disruptive in around 19 BC, apparently because they were actively and successfully proselytizing in Rome. This continued until about 49 AD, at which time Suetonius, a famous Roman historian, records that the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews because, quote, they constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, unquote. And here, many believe that the Crestus in question is a variant or corruption of the title Christ or Christos, namely one Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ. 
So regarding the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, we find mention of this event actually recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Quote, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, verse 2, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. Verse 3, And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks." Unquote. So here in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul is on his second missionary journey at Corinth in about 49 to 50 BC, where Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla, who have recently been expelled from Rome. Now it's not clear whether Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians before meeting Paul, or they were converted by his preaching. In any case, after 18 months, the three of them went together to Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila remained where, while Paul continued to Antioch. It is clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, that Priscilla and Aquila remained as faithful co-workers in the gospel and the growth of the church, and they had frequented Paul's thoughts and company over the next three to four years. They are mentioned at Ephesus where they had a church in their home and Paul writes in Romans chapter 16 verse 1 to Priscilla and Aquila who returned to Rome around 55 AD saying, quote, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, unquote. Lastly, Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 19 where they have returned home. In any case, the historical mention of the Jewish expulsion by Suetonius as well as by Luke demonstrates that the church at Rome likely owes its founding to those Jewish converts to Christianity whose habit, like Paul, was to go into the various synagogues on the Sabbath and to reason from Scripture to other Jews regarding the Messiah, Jesus Historically speaking, we do not have any record of any single individual who founded the church in Rome to which Paul writes. Some believe, as is possible, that Christianity was brought to Rome via Jews from Rome who were visiting Jerusalem during Pentecost, as seen in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, and who returned with the message of the gospel. What we do know is that Christianity represented a major presence in Rome in the late A.D. 40s, and that presence and its strength was so great that in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul gives thanks that the faith of the Roman church is spoken of throughout the world with which Paul was familiar with. Now you might ask, well, what about the theory that Peter founded the church in Rome? Well, this theory, often referred to as the Petrine theory, comes to fruition around the 3rd century AD when the Roman Catholic Church was looking to further solidify their claims as the quote-unquote universal church who held authority over all Christianity. 
they were looking to provide ultimate authority to the office of the Pope as well. And in order to do this, they claimed that the Apostle Peter, via references in various letters and records of the early church fathers, that Peter was present in Rome and was martyred there and was the first bishop of Rome. Further, the dogma and traditions of the Catholic Church maintain that he served as Bishop of Rome for 25 years until 67 AD when he was martyred by Nero. So, accepting this timeline is true, Peter would have begun his tenure as Bishop of Rome in 42 AD in order to give us our 25 years, which winds up in 67 AD. Now, Roman Catholics primarily cite 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 as the supposed quote-unquote proof that Peter was in Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 reads as follows, quote, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings as so does my son Mark, unquote. Here, according to the Roman Catholic theory, the quote-unquote she in this passage refers to a church for which Peter is allegedly the bishop and he is therefore sending a letter saying greetings to whomever winds up reading his letter that bears his name. However, there are several problems for this theory. First of all, number one, there are no letters or records which specifically mention Peter as being in Rome or as being the bishop of a church in Rome. Secondly, there is no archaeological evidence which shows that Peter was in Rome or was a bishop there. Thirdly, the time frame given by tradition that Peter was in Rome for 25 years, i.e. 42 to 67 AD, has no substantiation, and in fact, the known facts argue against it. For example, A. Reading Acts, the epistles and letters within the New Testament, Peter's presence is arguably fairly well attested to. There are repeated mentions of him by name, by others. He is involved in many instances with the events in the church, and he has two epistles bearing his name. In fact, Peter's name is mentioned 159 times in the New Testament. What is conspicuous is that if Peter had been in Rome for 25 years during the time when most of the epistles and letters were being written in the New Testament, then we should expect to read of some mention of Peter as the Bishop of Rome coming from going to, or being in Rome by somebody in the New Testament. Yet, we find none. B, since Paul wrote Romans between 58 and 60 AD, and Peter was allegedly, supposedly, the bishop of the Roman church from 42 to 60 AD, we should expect Paul to salute Peter or at least minimally to make mention of him in his letter to the Romans where Peter would have been situated as bishop. Yet the name Peter does not appear at all 
in the book of Romans, which is quite strange given the fact that he would have been bishop and surely uh, his name would have come up. C. Priscilla and Aquila appear in Corinth around 49 to 50 AD to meet Paul. They return to Rome around 55 AD and then finally return to Ephesus where they have a church in their home shortly thereafter. Yet, in all the traveling, neither one mentions Peter or having made a trip to his church in Rome, which would have seemed logical for such active evangelists. And D, given the fact that Peter was a bishop, supposedly, of a church in Rome for 25 years, one would expect that opposed to there being no evidence of Peter being there, that we would find repeated and numerous evidences of him being there. Now, a fourth problem to this theory is that the citation of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, and the reference to quote-unquote Babylon as evidence that Peter was writing from Rome, has problems. First of all, A, in most, if not all cases, the only way that Roman Catholics can equate the Babylon in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 as being synonymous with Rome is by going to Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 through 18, verses 21, where some believe that the Babylon, which is being referred to there, is in fact Rome. But the fact is that nowhere in Revelation does John specifically equate Babylon to Rome. More pro problematic for Roman Catholics is that if Revelation chapter 18 verses 9 through 21 are in fact referring to Rome as Babylon, then they also have to accept that God is ultimately judging and destroying Rome and the Catholic Church and its capital for its sins. And lastly, at the time Peter wrote 1 Peter and the reference to Babylon, John had not yet written Revelation, nor chapter 18, nor any of the references to Babylon. Therefore, any reference to or understanding of Revelation chapter 18 verses 9 and forward as being supposedly Babylon being Rome would have been non-existent and therefore there would be nothing to correlate uh, the two. And B, if we could ask any first century Jew living at the time Peter wrote 1 Peter to tell us what their common understanding and first thought was regarding the Babylon therein mentioned, the first thing that would likely come to mind is that Babylon which had taken the Jews into captivity some several hundred years earlier. If in fact we do complete a survey of scripture from Genesis to Revelation for the word Babylon, we find a grand total of 286 references. In every single one of these cases, including the four in the New Testament, almost every reference to Babylon is to that empire which had taken the Jews captive for 70 years. However, regarding Peter's mention of 
quote-unquote Babylon in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, making the assumption that the Babylon in Peter's epistle is referring to Rome or the Babylonian Empire are both problematic. Number one, if Peter is referring to Babylon as the Babylonian Empire in general, then there would be no fixed point of reference for people to understand specifically where Peter was because the Babylonian Empire reached thousands of miles in real estate throughout the Holy Land and the surrounding areas. Secondly, if Peter is referring to Rome as Babylon, then A, how did the average person in Peter's audience know that since there was absolutely no historical or cultural connection between the two and Revelation had not been written? And B, Rome, Italy was then and now geographically nowhere near where the western border of the Babylonian Empire ended. The two are literally hundreds of miles apart, even at the apex of the Babylonian Empire. And three, if Peter is referring to the city of Babylon within Iraq, then we have a specific location to refer to. However, A, the Babylon, the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq is over 2,700 miles from Rome, Italy. That's quite a big distance to attempt to then correlate the two. And B, there is no evidence of any Christian church being in the city of Babylon in Iraq, even if you wanted to correlate the two, despite the distance. So, if we eliminate Rome, Italy, the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, as well as the Babylonian Empire in general as being candidates for Peter's reference in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 as being the quote-unquote Babylon in question from which he was writing, then where was he writing from? Well, according to the historian Diodorus Siculus, Pharaoh Sesostris defeated the Babylonians. Sesostris took prisoners into Egypt to make slaves of them, but the prisoners, who were largely Jewish, rebelled and built fortifications to defend the area where they resided, which from then on was named Babylon. Even today, there's a fortress built situated in Old Cairo next to the Coptic Museum just across the Nile from Giza, which goes back to the 19th century BC. According to the 7th century Coptic historian John Bishop of Naiku, this fortress was built by Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon when he occupied Egypt in the second half of the 6th century BC. Nebuchadnezzar and others named the fortress and other various geographical locations in Egypt, logically, after Babylon or Babylonia. Even the secular source Wikipedia states the following about this ancient city. Quote, Babylon was a fortress city or castle in the delta of Egypt. It was situated upon the right or eastern bank of the Nile and near the commencement of the uh, Pharaonic Canal, also called Ptolemy's Canal and Trajan's Canal. From the Nile to the Red Sea, 
It was the boundary town between Lower and Middle Egypt where the river craft paid tolls when ascending or descending the Nile. Josephus, with greater probability, attributes its structure to some Babylonian followers of Cambrys in 525 BC. In the age of Augustus, the Deltic Babylon became a town of some importance and was the headquarters of the three legions which ensured the obedience of Egypt." Unquote. So here we see that there are numerous historical and archaeological sources to verify that there is one, if not more, geographical locations in Egypt which were named and commonly referred to as quote-unquote Babylon, which were in existence during the first century when Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13. Here's some more evidence which supports this theory. Number one, as stated, there are remains of Fort Babylon in Cairo, Egypt, which can be seen today. Two, several of the oldest churches dating back to the first century are built into or on the walls of Fort Babylon in Cairo. These include El Makwala, the Hanging Church, and the Greek Church of St. George. Number three, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter mentions Mark, who is also saluting the recipients of the letter written by Peter. Mark is the common name which is the same as Marcus in Latin, or Marcos in Greek, and is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. The mention of Mark by Peter in his immediate presence or close proximity furthers the case for Babylon being in Egypt. And this is because according to ancient tradition, Christianity was introduced to the Egyptians by St. Mark in Alexandria shortly after the ascension of Christ and during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius around 42 AD. Further, Mark became the first patriarch and bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. This would include the fact that the Babylon fortress, which we mentioned, was located some 140 miles to the southeast of Alexandria and would have been under Mark's jurisdiction. So, in summary, other than the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, there is no current or historical or archaeological or biblical evidence to support the theory that the Church of Rome was founded by Peter, or that Peter was the first bishop of any church in Rome. This theory, as stated, originates from the 2nd century forward and seems more likely to be the case of grandfathering and an attempt to legitimize papal authority in the seat of Rome in the 2nd century by virtue of placing Peter in Rome in the 1st century, and thereby create the uh, circular reasoning authority needed for the claim of Rome as the head of the church. Now, moving to just a little bit of uh, the history of the Book of Romans, at the time Paul wrote the Book of Romans, Paul was on his third missionary journey around 58 AD to 60 AD while he was at the church in Corinth. At this point Paul had already completed 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as well as 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. At the time of writing Paul had never visited Rome but he hoped to after finishing his Jerusalem mission 
to go to Rome en route to Spain, as, as seen in Romans chapter 15, verses 23 through, through 25. When Paul wrote his letter to the Christians at Rome towards the end of his third missionary journey, he was communicating with what appears to be a firmly established collections of believers in that city. Romans is placed first among Paul's letter in the New Testament, not only because it's his longest work, but because it also furnishes, as stated, a massive and basic theological framework for the whole collection of the apostles' writings. In essence, there was great confusion within the Roman church over the new covenant of grace through faith in Jesus Christ versus the requirements of the Mosaic law. It's in the midst of this dilemma that St. Paul, a student of Rabbi Gamaliel, was one of the greatest Pharisees of that time, who then goes on to write the book of Romans, which forges, as stated, the doctrinal link between the Old and New Testament. And as previously stated, Romans has played a major role in all the great revivals throughout church history. It played a foundational role in the Reformation itself, and it played a significant role in some of the great conversions in Christendom. Among these, Augustine, who, while still a pagan, sitting in his garden, heard someone shout a verse from Romans from the other side of a wall. Likewise, it was Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which became the watershed moment in Martin Luther's life, which led him eventually to spark his conversion and ultimately the Reformation. Charles Wesley's conversion came as a result of meditating on Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. So Romans was and remains a seminal treatise in doctrinal dissertation of the life, fellowship, and relationship which God created and ordained with his creation, man, prior to the fall. Romans can be understood to be a systematic theological explanation of what happened and its meaning from the time that God created Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, and proclaimed them as quote-unquote very good, to the mechanics and purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which can alternately be called the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, etc., Romans, as stated, is the cliff notes of what Paul referred to as, quote, the schoolmaster, unquote. The schoolmaster being everything that occurred post-fall in Genesis until Christ's finished work. In this respect, Romans gives a summary outline of what God was teaching by his commands, laws, regulations, and rules and what mankind was supposed to learn as a consequence. This concludes this introductory episode to Romans. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.